Sup, sup, people. I'm super excited to drop my second interview of the year, and this one has been in the works for quite some time. In fact, I've been wanting to interview Matt Flissfetter after listening to his post-posthumanism interview on the Pill Pod and discovering that he was the one that facilitated the Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Zizek debate back in 2019 in Toronto. Ever since then, I've been following his work rather closely, and I think he is by far one of the most interesting up-and-coming Canadian scholars and public intellectuals, along with Matt McManus and Galen Watts, whom I've already interviewed on my podcast. So if you haven't listened to those interviews yet, make sure to check them out. As you'll hear shortly, I am completely captivated by Matt Flissfetter's ongoing work on a new form of structuralism and humanism, since it parallels my own research interests on Habermas's new structuralism and Jacques Maritain's work on integral humanism. In fact, this is why I launched my Integral Humanism newsletter and named my podcast Integral Facticity, which is a sort of shorthand for my own new form of structuralism, which I've been researching for the last decade or so through independent means. That said, if, you've inter- if you're interested in my research or thinking on these matters, check out my website, metapattern.ca. So without further ado, here's my interview with Matt Flissfetter from the University of Winnipeg. As always, make sure to check out the show notes, and I can't wait to hear what you all think. Peace. I actually came across your work because I've been following Matt McManus for quite some time. Um due to uh, some of his writings that he eventually started to go out and post up on some somewhat controversial websites <laughs> and uh, sort of attacking the, uh, the, the, Peter, uh, the Peterson phenomenon that had been coming up. Uh, and I got very interested in, in some of uh, Matt's work and then eventually some of the articulations that he was starting to do around, uh, you know, some of his writing on the rise of postmodern conservatism. And uh, the guys over at the PillPod eventually released a sort of short video on uh, <laughs> Matt's work and his eventual book and stuff like that. So that's where I started to, to listen into their pod. And when you came on to go and do the, uh, the, uh, the podcast you did with him on the post, post-humanism, I was just blown away. I was like, yes, this is exactly what <laughs> uh, I had been wanting to go out and talk about for quite some time. Uh, and essentially, you know, you just so beautifully highlight and point out the sort of performative contradictions in terms of postmodernism and posthumanism um, and the new materialism type of work and research that you've been doing. So I'm just so uh, just excited to get into that with you. Uh, but before doing that, I mean, I'm just kind of curious how you bumped into the guys over at the pill pod and how that kind of you know you got invited on their podcast so that's that's a great question so first of all uh thanks for your your comments there and i also i really like uh matt mcmanus's work uh, quite a bit um it was really by accident um that i got onto that podcast i think it was on twitter i was talking to victor um or i had posted something about uh, my work on humanism on Twitter and Victor and I engaged in a discussion 
about some of the things that I was um, focusing on at the time. And he said, uh, do you have any, have you published anything about this? So I sent him an article that I had written um, that came out in the journal Postmodern Culture. And he said, okay, well, let's have you on the show and we'll, we'll talk about it. And I went on the show knowing that uh, some of the other guys on the show, Eric there, Dylan there, or Pills, they call him um, there, I knew that they had some disagreements with my position. So I was kind of fascinated that they were going to have me on the show to uh, to talk about what I think is uh, something that they're, they're, they're quite critical of. So I uh, commend them uh, for doing that. And I would have liked to have had a longer conversation with them and taken up some of the debates that um, or critiques that they might have of my humanist position and um, had a longer conversation, but they were very nice to have me on the show and ask me some really great questions about my uh, my thinking on trying to reconceptualize what I call a universalist and dialectical humanism, very much in the historical context of what we now um, popularly are, are calling the age of the Anthropocene um, as a new geological period where it's said that the uh, human culture civilization has had a geological impact on the formation um, of the planet. So I take some issue with the popular use of the concept of Anthropocene. And I went on the show and I had a great conversation with them about why that's the case. And it's it's a great, I mean, pod. I mean, particularly for me anyways, it was a great introduction to understand your work. And I mean, for somebody that was, I mean, so neat, I mean, because when I was in school uh, in religious studies, I mean, I just got exposed to uh, Habermas's thought uh, tremendously. So obviously the idea of the performative contradiction uh, is a big sort of, <laughs> I guess, uh, idea or concept within his work in terms of his attacks on postmodernism. So once I heard you guys discussing all that, I was just, I was floored. I was like so super excited because um, I guess, I mean, unlike them, I mean, I'm not as well versed in Slavoj's work and Slavoj Zizek. And I know that, I mean, most of your studies, you actually studied with him. Uh, well, not with him, but, you know, covered a tremendous amount of, of his work. And obviously, all of your thinking is pretty much grounded in his philosophy in one way or another. Um, and I mean, I was just not that attracted to his work till then. So for me, <laughs> so I mean, you totally exposed me to, to uh, or encouraged me encouraging me even more now today to go and start diving into his work in a sort of more uh, in-depth fashion. Uh, so I, one, just thank you for that because I just couldn't see the appeal of, of Zizek all the way up until that particular point. I was just, you know, um, almost, you know, even before kind of getting exposed to Matt's work, I was almost falling into the sort of Petersonian sort of world reactionary sort of motif because of what I actually experienced in university. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, pretty much what I shared with you, I mean, I left academia in a sort of bitter, bitter sort of sweet uh, uh, way in the sense that, you know, like I was faced basically, you know, and I graduated in 2013. So when I was, you know, do what contemplating to go and move on to graduate studies, I was faced with that sort of, uh, of reality of, you know, do I want to go and keep on going on with my studies in this sort of uh, landscape uh, and discourse that was just tremendously so like uh, suffocating in a certain way, particularly at my university up at Concordia. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just assumed pretty much that sort of Zizek would, was kind of within that sort of realm of thinking and stuff. 
until I get exposed to obviously Matt McManus's work, the guys over at the Pill Pod, and I eventually discovered that, wait a minute, you know, there is this sort of left-wing sort of thought that doesn't go and fall into the area of identity politics. And it doesn't necessarily actually go out and be, uh, doesn't necessarily equate with sort of standard uh, Marxism. Um, and I guess maybe that's my kind of my, my first question to you is that, I mean, since you're talking about a humanism now, I mean, do you still consider yourself to be a sort of Marxist in a certain way? Or how do you uh, kind of identify yourself within the sort of Marxist left tradition, even though yeah, you're explaining no. humanism? No, that's a great question. And I guess the first thing that I'll point out is that, uh, well, first of all, I'll say yes. I mean, I very much do consider myself working within the realm of uh, Marxism, the history of Marxism, Marxist critical theory, um, his critique of political economy and his critique of capitalism. I still very much uh, see my work as uh, involved in that project. But I, I should say right from the get go, I think that one of the um, one of the challenges I think today is the recognizing that there is a very important, a very significant uh, stream of humanist thinking, not only in the history of Marxism, but also in Marx's work. One of the things that I'm trying to do with my current project on universal dialectical humanism is on the one hand, I'm someone who has been very much influenced, um, as you said, by Zizek's work, and I have a few more things that I can say about uh, Zizek's work based on uh, the comments that you just made. But also, um, I've been working through the, um, the the theories of Louis Althusser. And Louis Althusser was somebody that became very important for me very early on in my undergraduate studies. I started undergraduate studies uh, at York University in Toronto um, doing a, I did a double major in fine arts, cultural studies and communication studies and a minor in film. And it was more or less a, a studies on visual culture. And a lot of, so much of the theory that was coming out in cultural studies and film studies and media studies in the 80s and 90s was influenced by the work of Louis Althusser, his conception of ideology, his conception of subjectivity, his conception of ideological interpolation. Um, anybody who's studied uh, cinema or screen, uh, screen theory knows that Althusser's conception of ideology and interpolation is tied to the way we imagine the um, ideological ideological impact of cinema on the spectator's subject, for instance. So Althusser was very important to me uh, early on. And one of the reasons I got interested in Zizek's work was in Althusser, I had some questions as a um at that point not you know as much of an expert in his work but some of the questions i had were i was really thinking about you know how in fact does ideology in, in, incept itself into the mind of the subject and these were some of the questions that zizek was asking very early on in his first book in english the sublime object of ideology and he develops a kind of a camaraderie critique of Althusser's theories of ideology and subjectivity. Um, so that was, so Althusser and Zizek have been very important for me um, overall. But the more I studied Althusser, the more I learned about his critique of theoretical humanism um, in the 1960s and his challenge to um, to the, the history of theoretical humanism, his development of his conception of theoretical anti-humanism, his conception of the epistemological breaks, but break between uh, Marx's 
early writings, specifically in the later published 1844 philosophical manuscripts. Um, he really sees the, the real Marx maturing sometime after the German ideology and much more so in his major work uh, uh, on Capital, Capital Volume 1, um, 1, 2, and 3, uh, and so on. And Althusser's anti-humanism, it's important to contextualize historically because at the time, with the rediscovery of Marx's 1844 philosophical manuscripts, there was this newly, there was this popular emergent uh, form of Marxist humanism um, in Europe, um, in, in Germany and in, in France in particular, in France with people like Henri Lefebvre, for instance, was a proponent of Marxist humanism. Others who were influenced um, uh, um, by Marx's 1844 manuscripts, the work of Jean-Paul Sartre, for mm -hmm. instance. Sartre, of course, influenced other um, Marxist radicals like the Situationist, the work of Guy Debord. You can definitely see the development of Sartre's existential Marxism in the work of Debord and Society of the Spectacle and the humanist element of Sartre comes through in that way. So, and then the other thing too, of course, was in the process of de-Stalinization in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, um, uh, under Khrushchev, the, the Communist Party adopted what they called official uh, humanism, which for them was a way of expressing uh, a view of uh, an attempt at peaceful coexistence between East and West. So this is what was going on all around Althusser. And I should say that the French Communist Party, of course, too, as a Stalinist party, as a party that was basically always aligned with the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, they too started adopting this official humanism. So this was something that was um, around Althusser at the time. And he was starting to see how the his concern was that the adoption of humanism was going too far towards the adoption of a bourgeois, liberal, democratic, or social democratic, you might say, um, um, conception of uh, Marxism. So today, it's interesting because so much of the anti-humanism or the theoretical anti-humanism that we see in contemporary Marxism, I think carries the trajectory of Althusser's uh, theoretical anti-humanism. But it is noteworthy that humanism is something I still believe has been central to Marx and the Marxist project generally, especially when we think about the way that as uh, George Lukács um, described the process of reification, which mm -hmm. he developed by drawing a Marxist conception of commodity fetishism, that reification, as he understood and as I understand it, and I think still as Marx understood it, is very much a way of describing a process of objectification that is equated with a kind of a dehumanization. So that what we see in capitalism, for instance, is despite a lot of the rhetoric you get in bourgeois and liberal discourse, about, um, you know, the values of the human spirit and so on. I think that by um, reifying the globe according to the logic of the market, the market itself is objectifying and very much dehumanizing. So my interest in humanism, I very much see as part of the Marxist project overall in trying not necessarily to conceive of what are the essential qualities of being human, but humanism as a framework that I think is tied to conceptions of freedom, reciprocity, equality, all of the things that historical Marxism has been fighting for for well over a century.
Absolutely. No, yeah. And I mean, and for me as well, I mean, in terms of my introduction, in terms of uh, Marxist humanism, I mean, I came in through Fromm. Uh, and I love Fromm in terms of his overall body of work. And I mean, that's actually what I had read at, up, at the, up till that point where I actually returned to university. Uh, and he had completely fallen out of fashion. <laughs> Nobody wanted to go out and talk about Fromm or Marxist humanism some particular way. And that's where I start to just get slammed with Habermas. Uh, in terms of my professors, that the only person they ever want to go out and talk about is Habermas when it came to the philosophy of religion and uh, religious studies in a certain way. Can I just just to jump in quickly because uh, yeah. just on Brahm and Lefebvre, I mean, I appreciate their work very much, but even though I consider myself a Marxist and I consider myself a humanist, mm. I my so much of what I'm trying to do also is to try to move away from the canonical Marxist, you know, Marxist hyphen humanism, Marxist humanism, because yeah. I still think that there's an idealist element in the way that Fromm and Lefebvre, for instance, um, Lukash as well, uh, for instance, in some ways, I think they're drawing on and, and so much of the what Althusser was critical of in Marxist humanism was the Hegelianization of Marxism. And I think the problem was not so much with Hegel, but the particular interpretation of Hegel that we get in Lefebvre and from um, in Lukash and even in some ways in, in Marx, the interpretation of Hegel that imagines the process uh, a process that begins with an alienation and then a process of disalienation or de-alienation that will return human collectivity or human subjectivity back to its essential origins or recombination with some notion of total man. And this is where I agree with Althusser, that I think that it's problematic to think about this, some conception of a return or revival of a basic human nature. One of the things that I get from uh, Zizek's interpretation of Hegel, for instance, is the realization that alienation is not a, con uh, a contingent aspect of human subjectivity, but is rather a constitutive aspect of human subjectivity, very much in the sense if we think of freedom, freedom is not the freedom to have it all in my, in my interpretation of it. Freedom is the freedom to Make, make effective material choices. And in every choice we make, we at the same time are losing all of the other options. We're alienated from all the other options that we have uh, available to us. So I think that it's difficult and problematic to conceive as Fromm does, as Lefebvre does, for instance, of some kind of disalienation that returns us to some kind of complete, total, whole um, um, human existence, some kind of recombination with nature. I find this to be too idealist and too utopian. When I talk about humanism, the basic idea that I have is to center human interests and human needs. And it, historically, you know, historically um, uh, variable human needs and human interests. Great. No, absolutely. And I mean, because my own interest, I mean, eventually I got into Jacques Maritain's work and Jacques Maritain's work on integral humanism was something that uh, just completely captured me during the course of my studies. And so I was just bouncing back between Habermas and Jacques Maritain all the time, trying to go out and wrestle within, I guess, religious studies, <laughs> you know, where does humanism stand today or what can humanism still go out and contribute? Um, to uh i mean the, the flourishing of 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 human nature essentially and what role does religion actually go out and play into that uh so i guess my, my approaching i mean my reaching out to you is is i guess slightly different than everybody else as well because i mean i'm coming to you from religious studies 
Uh, and now that I'm, you know, out of religious studies, I wish I would have got exposed to Zizek's ideas because obviously now I've, you know, since discovered he's written quite a bit on religion as well. And he had some, obviously some interesting back and forth with Milbank uh, and, you know, and I got exposed to that a bit, but I still never really kind of gravitated towards it in a certain way until now and com coming across your work. Uh, because you're talking about a larger or a, a new understanding of humanism to me that is just really exciting uh, that weaves in obviously the Marxism, obviously the humanistic and existential standpoint from what I've read of you either which way and that your very your your idea of technology as well is such a fresh air because it's not negative. It's not like, hey, you know what? We need to go and completely stamp stamp this out or get rid of it. In sense, you're you're saying that no, we need to actually go out and reappropriate it in a healthier way for us to actually go out and you know uh, actually actualize our full humanity in a certain way. And to me, that's just such a uh, uh, so uplifting and hopeful in terms of a message. I think compared to what you know the the sort of standard. <laughs> Uh, critical theory uh, and post-humanism sort of critical theory takes on stuff, right? That just wants to go out and completely, I mean, in a certain way, and get rid of the human in a certain way, that we're some sort of pathology that we need to go and get rid of. Um, so I guess my, my question now is, I mean, because obviously I know you're not a religious studies scholar. I mean, you're a media and communication theorist and stuff like that. But I mean, I've been dying now to sit down with you and trying to just get a bit of a feel in terms of how you see religion actually kind of fitting into uh, your ideas of humanism. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think you're allergic to it. I've never seen anything kind of come out of you either on Twitter or anywhere that you're completely allergic to, to religion in a certain way. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was just curious to hear, I guess, some of your, your thoughts on that a bit. Uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, so I should say that um, so my own background. So I'm Jewish. I'm uh, not a religious Jewish person. Um, I identify as Jewish as part of my culture and my nationality. Um, as a Zizek scholar, his writing on Christianity and his um, position as what he calls he calls himself a Christian atheist, I've always found very fascinating. And I've kind of read his Christian atheism in terms of the way that he interprets the logic of spirit in Hegel's uh, writing. And I think that for him, he sees uh, Hegel's Christianity as a very much of a, a kind of um, materialism. I will say that, and this is some, this is a thought that I've had recently as I read through um, the chapter. So uh, Zizek co-authored a book um, with my friend Agon Hamza and uh, Frank Ruda. Uh, there were two. There was one called Reading Marx and then a new one called Reading Hegel, which I think came out last year. I think it came out last year. And it was in reading Agon's chapter that I started to think more and more about the impact or the influence of Christianity in uh, Zizek's writing. And it became apparent to me that one of the reasons why I think Zizek maintains a kind of an anti-humanist perspective has to do in some ways with his reading of Christianity. Now, I should say that even though um, I identify as a humanist and I've been influenced by uh, Zizek's work and he 
continues to refer to himself as an anti-humanist. Um, the humanism that I espouse, I think, has been influenced by his return to Hegel, his return, as he puts it sometimes, moving from Marx back to Hegel. And I I interpreted him for a long time, and I still do in some ways, I interpret him, despite what he says, as a humanist uh, thinker. But it was after reading um, Agon's work and then thinking more about uh, Zizek's uh, focus on Christianity that I started to realize that I think that where his anti-humanism comes in, um, in part, I think it's still as a critique of liberal bourgeois and even the Marxist humanists of the 20th century. But I also think it has to do with the way he interprets the function of spirit in uh, in Hegel, in Hegel's phenomenology of spirit, for instance, or objective spirit um, in a certain way, in the sense that, and even in Hegel's understanding of history, the Owl of Minerva and so forth, um, the idea of, uh, you know, in psychoanalytic um, uh, terms, the function of nectroglycite um, or retroactivity or afterwardness that we can only ever know, for instance, we can only ever know historical inevitability after the fact. I mean, that's a Leninist kind of way of uh, interpreting it that goes against so much of the Stalinian um, doctrine of, you know, the proletariat and the communist party serving the purposes of history that there's the teleological sense of history Zizek's position is that you can you can never actually know um historical inevitability of course until after the fact and that was hegel's position as well but in the process of acting still without any certainty and contingent conditions we still have to we still do an uh, 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 ultimately act out of necessity. And it's in this acting out of necessity that we have the building of what Zizek, drawing on Hegel, refers to as the silent weaving of the spirit. Um, that we're we're helping to produce spirit in our acting in a in a kind of a uh, in a blind way, right? Without any prior uh, knowledge of it. So there's that way of thinking about religion that I get from uh, from Zizek um, in that sense. And I think that for him, at least, it contributes to the way that he thinks of himself as an anti-humanist, or he sometimes refers to himself as an inhumanist uh, figure. And his inhumanism is tied to the way in which he, he thinks about the Freudian category of the death drive, that we are propelled to act not out of some conscious sense of what we want, but by way of some unconscious relationship uh, to our enjoyment. I think that for him, humanism is uh, this conception of, you know, we're fully self-aware, fully conscious of what we want, how we act. Um, and I think there's a parallel too in Althusser. One of the things that Althusser says, um, and I agree with him, is that the thing that aligns Marx and Freud is that they both produce in different ways a critique of the bourgeois humanist conception of the fully self-aware, fully individual free uh, subject. Marx challenges this notion with his conception of history as the history of class struggle. So it's the class struggle that is productive of history, not individuals with a free, fully self-aware self-consciousness. And Freud, of course, challenges the bourgeois conception of fully self-aware subject with his discovery of the unconscious, that there's an aspect of our subjectivity that we're not aware of. So that both Marx and Freud are challenging this bourgeois conception, this bourgeois conception of a, a humanist subject, 
And I think that that's one of the things that Zizek wants to do too. But for him, I think that he adds in this dimension of the silent weaving of the spirit as another dimension of how um, the individual human subject is not always fully self-aware and reconciled with their own agency um, in that way. I mean, other than that, I haven't given um, the, the spiritual side of religion that much thought in my own work. And I think that for some people, just coming back to my own um, identity, that for some people, I think that this is difficult to understand when it comes to Jewish people, mm. because I think that many people see uh, Judaism only as a religion, right, as a religion, whereas I think that the majority of us Jewish people see ourselves not just as a religion, but as a nationality and as a culture. And as a nationality and as a culture, being Jewish has been very much a part of my identity and the way that I perceive and understand the world, the way that I understand the antagonisms that are present politically uh, in the world in many different ways, um, um, locally and, of course, internationally in terms of, you know, different geopolitical um, conflicts and inter-imperialist um, rivalries. Um, and of course, the struggle against anti-Semitism has been something that's very much in, you know, in, in recently I've been, I've been writing about this um, in the framework that I use to grapple with my own uh, conception of humanism. And it comes back to, in some ways too, um, in, it, it's a controversial piece of writing and I don't, and I have criticisms of the second half of it, of course, but Marx is on the Jewish question from 1843. But in the first half of it, when he's challenging Bruno Bauer, uh, for instance, Bruno Bauer argues that if the Jews want emancipation, then they should just stop being Jewish. I mean, that was more just to be reductive here. That was Bruno Bauer's argument. And Marx comes back and he says, um, no, the problem is not that Jews are not free because they won't give up being Jewish. The problem is that we live in a world that has not yet produced full human emancipation that universal human emancipation should be our goal, although political emancipation, which the you know Jewish people, of course, have and had, you know, at the time, in some ways, when Bauer was writing, when Marx was responding, had political emancipation, which is, you know, freedom of religion, for instance. But the problem is not about renouncing your, your cultural identity or your religious identity or your national identity, but the objective is to contribute to and participate in the universal struggle for human emancipation. So there's something in the way that Marx was writing about the coincidence between the struggle um, for a Jewish emancipation and human emancipation that I think still sticks very much with me in the projects I'm engaging in right now. Beautiful. I mean, because for me as well, I mean, the reason why all my professors in religious studies all gravitated towards Hammermas was because of how seriously he took the idea of what happened around the Holocaust, right? So they were, and most of my professors, a few of my professors, well, quite a few, a handful of my professors were uh, Jewish and they were wrestling with the idea of, uh, you know, kind of post-Holocaust theology and what does that actually go out and mean to actually go out and be Jewish. Uh, and that had a tremendous impact on me uh, in terms of the course of my studies. Uh, and in fact, I mean, that's pretty much where we ended up focusing a lot of our energy when we were talking about critical uh, critical theory and religious studies is this confluence, obviously, of everything that grew out of the Frankfurt School and it needs to go, so go out and be taken very seriously because of everything that happened. And 
I mean, as a Catholic as well myself, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the everything that Catholic did as well during the, the Second World War and, you know, our participation in that as well. So, you know, all of my professors were all post-Vatican II sort of uh, theologians or exploring the question, you know, you know, we can't go back, we can't regress to anything, you know, past, uh, previous to uh, Vatican II because of the ideas of uh, relations with uh, the Jewish people and stuff like that. Um, so I guess, but my question is this, is that, I mean, because obviously Peterson now, I mean, because, you know, I shared uh, McManus's sort of uh, 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 article that he put out on, on God and politics comparing Zizek and Peterson. And to me, this is where it gets really frightening with Peterson uh, in a certain way, right? Because he's, you know, he has the backing of a lot of fundamentalists and he's talking a lot of the time with these sort of called sort of, you know, the new right or postmodern conservatism or this new nationalism sort of movement. And they're talking about this idea of sort of reviving some sort of Christendom. Um, and that to me is just like, what is going on, obviously, in terms of this? And what does it actually go out and mean for Jewish people that are living within, you know, Western democracies or even Muslims? And what does this mean for, you know, interfaith dialogue when it comes to, to living in so-called now post-liberal, you know, sort of nation states, whatever the hell that means? Uh, so I guess my question is this, is it because obviously you you butt heads with Zizek on this over not only the humanism aspect, but obviously I'm assuming a bit somewhat of a, the, you know, you can't really relate to him on the Christian sort of uh, dimensions to his work. But also, if I understand correctly, the idea of humanism is 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 very much in flux. So you're talking about your own sort of um new humanism if i understand you correctly like you're really pushing towards some sort of new humanism uh instead of just a renewal because sometimes you hint at renewal at times and at other times you're thinking you know like so i'm, I'm curious to see if if you see this as a as a well you even refer to it as we need a new structuralism and some form of humanism and mm -hmm. i was curious to hear you know a bit more of your thoughts on that and and whether you think this is something that's on the horizon this is something new that's emerging out of this uh everything that's been going on for the last like you know since the the 1960s in a certain way and uh you know and the, the tensions around the culture war and everything else yeah no those are great questions there's a lot in there so i'm gonna try, i'm gonna try try to respond yeah yeah uh, to a lot because i mean there's there's a lot that i want to say on the points that you're making you think you're making a lot of great points um the first thing i would say is i don't know if i would say that i'm butting heads with zizek so much as i'm trying to reframe what I think he's doing, but according to what I see as a discourse and uh, and a rhetoric and an aesthetic that um, centers on humanism. One of the reasons why, now I get it, that it's, you know, sometimes it looks like what I'm doing is a new humanism and sometimes it looks like a renewal. I'll say that the, the first part of why I might call what I'm doing a new humanism is because I'm trying to uh, via Zizek and Althusser in some ways, I'm trying to challenge the humanism of the Marxist humanists, um, because largely I think that they have a reading of Hegel that I don't agree with, and that I think based on um, Zizek's interpretation, and then of course going back to Hegel's text myself, I think that Zizek is correct in his interpretation of Hegel, and he points out some of the errors 
um, that were made, not just in the Marxist humanist, but I said even in Marx. And Marx, for instance, the way that Marx, both the early and the later Marx, I think, the way that he interprets, and then Engels too, the way they interpret the category of the negation of the negation, which I think for them reads very much as a kind of uh, linear historical trajectory. Whereas in the way that I read Hegel's negation of the negation through Zizek and through Zizek's Lacanian um, reading of Hegel, I see the negation of the negation as something that has much more to do with the way in which the subject um, engages with and reconciles with its own freedom or way it reconciles with its truth and the way that it reconciles with the inevitability, the intractability of contradiction, that there's no reconciliation in terms of the elimination of contradiction, but that ontologically contradiction and incompleteness are central to um, the reality that exists. The reason why so that's why I'd say that my humanism is maybe new in the sense that it's trying to break in some ways with the understanding of humanism that you see in the Marxist humanists and in um, Marx himself. The reason why I say it's a renewal of humanism is because I think that even, you know, from um, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment uh, going forward, that there's something about the rise of secular humanism mm. uh, and the materialism of secular humanism and the notion that um, we can produce out of the existing um, dilemmas that we face, we can produce conceptions of the kind of world, the kind of society that we want to build, the kinds of structures and institutions that we want to build to maximize freedom. And I think the reason we want to maximize freedom is because, at least as I understand it, individual freedom is dependent upon the freedom of the whole. There is no freedom unless we are all free. So that's why I consider, that's why I speak of a universalist humanism, but as a materialism, as a secularism and as a materialism, my argument based on the traditions of um, Renaissance, Enlightenment, and even in some ways, the original goals of bourgeois humanism is that nobody can produce this but us, that we are responsible for producing the conditions in which we wish to live, um, as well as, again, drawing on um, Enlightenment humanist goals and ideals such as freedom and equality, responsibility, reciprocity. I mean, these are all of the, the qualities of humanism that I aim to renew um, in the work that I'm doing. So the new part is really trying to, still within the framework of Marxism, challenge the understanding of humanism you see um, in the Marxist humanists and challenge the interpretation of Hegel that you see in Marx in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways, the category of negation and negation in particular, but then renewing what I think are essential characteristics of humanism that we get from the enlightenment tradition um, in particular. Um, Sorry, so there was a lot there. I'm, I'm yeah, to... no, and that's perfect. Well, I mean, oh, I, I love the, the fact that you're... Oh, I was going to say, sorry, sorry, the new yeah. structuralism. You asked yeah. about new structuralism because yeah. that's something I get asked about a lot um, because my last book was called uh, Algorithmic Desire Toward New Structuralist Theory of Social Media. Um, now, the structuralism that I'm thinking about here as the old structuralism, if you want to call that, uh, call it that, is um, the structuralism of uh, figures like uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss and uh, even um, Althusser's uh, structural Marxism. And these are the traditions of structuralism that I believe I'm challenging in my Algorithmic Desire book. 
And I'm conceiving of a new structuralism, of course, based on Zizek and um, his uh, comrades in the Ljubljana school, Milan Dolar, Alenka Zupancic. And if it, it this is a very going to be a very crude way of trying to explain this, but and I and I've talked about this with a little bit with Todd McGowan, I think, and I've talked about it with Zizek um, a little bit, but thinking about the the way in which this new structuralism is almost an overlap of dimensions of Lacan with Sartre, which, you know, sounds like it wouldn't work because I think that they were in some ways philosophical, theoretical enemies. But the key point for me is in the Ljubljana school, imagining the structure as incomplete, as fissured by gaps, fissured by contradictions. And it's in the position of the contradiction that we're able to locate the position of the subject. So it's a structure as an incomplete whole that I'm trying to conceive in the way that I articulate um, this new structuralism. And the work that I've done on humanism is trying to think of, okay, well, what are we going to, um, um, how are we going to respond to this gap, this whole, what concept do we need to complete, uh, not to complete, but to to uh, reconcile with the gap that's always present within the structure. For Zizek, the concept, of course, is communism. And for very important political and historical reasons, I don't think that that's a useful concept um, for interpolating a mass um, mass public that wants to um, build and when I say structuralism here too, I mean building structures, not just destroying structures, but building structures that we require, institutions, frameworks, infrastructures that we need for our freedom. So what concept is the most valuable for doing that? And I think it's humanism. Zizek thinks it's communism. I think it's humanism. But other, than, you know, but there's very, very little that I think we disagree with, uh, disagree on. Um, otherwise, even though those are concepts that... Um, develop our, our thinking. You asked, uh, just as I'm talking, you asked about the, the you know, the, the, the way that uh, religion and Christianity plays a function in Peterson, and even the way that Peterson has been able to interpolate, to address, and to include in a certain way um, folks who have feel like they're not being addressed by left discourse. And I think that that's one of the things that has pulled people towards that perspective. In other words, I think that even though I don't, I'm not a religious person, um, I think that it's a huge failure of left discourse mm. to exclude um, people who are religious, right? Absolutely. Uh, Christians, Muslims, Jewish people, religious Jews. I think that it's a huge, um, and this is one, it's also one of the reasons why I don't know if I, I'll say outright, I don't consider myself, even though I identify as a Marxist, as a socialist, um, I don't see myself as a leftist. I think that left-right dichotomies are useless in understanding the existing political terrain and even the ethical dimensions of politics today in the sense of what is to be done. I think I would, I much prefer uh, thinking in terms of concepts and material projects of building rather than aligning ourselves in terms of forms of groupthink, which is what I think left and right does. Yeah. Um, and it's by now there are, of course, I don't want to I don't want to exclude this. There is, of course, a history of left projects um, that in, that are, you know, that do draw on and are built around religious um projects, religious understandings um, um, of the world. But I think that there's a particular type of left discourse 
in Western Europe, in the United States, in Canada, that I think try that uh, sees religion merely as a kind of a right wing, you know, moral majority um, type thing. And I don't think that that really speaks to uh, the 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 worldviews of so many people. Yeah. And that's something I think that somebody like Peterson has picked up on. Um, and I think that is one of the things that makes his uh, rhetoric, and I don't mean rhetoric in a negative way, I just mean his 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 um, 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 level of persuasiveness, yeah. right? I think that's what makes it so appealing to so many people. And the other thing that I think Peterson has done uh, is I think that, and I'm not saying everyone, there's, there's, I'm not saying everyone here. So this is, I want to be clear on this, but I think there's a version of left discourse that ha- is in some ways anti, anti-masculine that without recognizing that there is within 21st century capitalism very much and neoliberal capitalism, very much a crisis of masculinity, and that there are a lot of young men in particular who are dealing with this crisis of masculinity, and it's impacting their mental health. So Peterson is somebody who who's speaking to this, and he's acknowledging the difficulties that young men are facing. And it's, you know, I don't want it to just, just, I mean, that it's a, a, you know, just, you know, young white men, I think that it's a, you know, it's a multiracial, you know, experience that many men, young men are having today. Now, I don't agree with his um, prescriptions for how to deal with the crisis of masculinity, not even close. But I do think that he's picking up on something that much of the left discourse in Western Europe, and and I, I mean, you know, the English-speaking world, I should say, yeah, the United States um, are neglecting. Absolutely, so that's where I think a lot of his appeal yeah. comes. No, and I mean, this is why. I mean, I I launched my podcast in honor of Michael Brooks because I mean, Michael Brooks was just able to go out and break down these barriers, and particularly to talk to the left or synthesize, well, uh, not alienate religious and spiritual people uh, on the left uh, and obviously he leaned on Cornell West very much to go and you know and weave in that stuff in terms of his his thinking and obviously his work his online work that he was doing so I mean in you know Ben Burgess and Matt McManus's ongoing collaboration and their writing on the right as well falls very much in line with that so that's why I've gravitated towards their work and mm-hmm. I see that in you as well is that I mean this new humanism that you're trying to articulate is is making room for all of this uh and to me i mean anyways i I think that's exciting because i think you know like as you're moving to try to articulate this sort of new structuralism this new structuralism essentially is constructing this new humanism that can actually go out and make room for all of these uh, this phenomena that's there right and how we can actually go and talk uh, talk about it skillfully in a certain way uh and that's why i mean i've been so excited you know like since i've discovered your work uh, and I'm happy to hear, you know, all of this in terms of, you know, your your ideas in terms of religion and how you you view the left and how the left in terms of discourse could definitely go and improve uh, when we're talking about, you know, the idea of spirituality and religion. And even Zizek, I mean, now that I've been exposed to it a bit more, I see this as well in his work. Um, I just want to say, you know, with, with, with Zizek's work, I think that many people first encounter Zizek from his popular writing and even some of his short political um, books. I, as I said before, I got into Zizek beginning with his philosophical work. And I think that that's what people 
you know, popularly, not everyone, of course, but popularly tend to ignore. And I think that studying his key philosophical texts, for me at least, and I encourage folks, it, it develop, it brings insights that I don't think that we get in uh, the short online think piece. My very good friend, Clint Burnham, wrote a chapter for a, a collection I edited with my friend, Louis Paul Willis, Zizek uh, Committee Studies, a reader, that uh, Clint wrote a piece. And then I think it appeared later on in his book, um, Does the Internet Have an Unconscious, on is Zizek, uh, Zizek as an internet philosopher. Because Zizek is not somebody, he doesn't use social media, he doesn't... Um, you know, he doesn't have a YouTube channel. He appears on <laughs> exactly, yeah. and he does talks that are on YouTube. Um, but I think that that's many people's first encounter with Zizek. And I think that once you, you know, get the Zizek bug, you're going into a lot of his philosophical writing. I think um, what opens people's eyes to some of the the philosophical logic behind what appears to be his, you know, very um, controversial public statements um and i you know i have mixed feelings about how he does that but i think that a, a deeper understanding of where he's coming from can help to understand and, gra- and grasp the the logic of his writing and i think that one of the event and i and i should say one of the 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 if i hope i'm remembered for anything it's being part of the organizing the debate between <laughs> and, and peterson um but that was such an eye-opening event for me at least because it changed my view around a lot of things including um free speech the you know the platforming uh debate and what zizek did was he addressed peterson's fans on their own terms he addressed yeah. them on their own terms. And he said, look, I understand where you're coming from. I understand what you're dealing with. I understand the solutions you've been offered. I don't think you've been offered the right solutions. And I think that you should try to expand your horizons a little bit. Right. And I think it worked. And I think that it worked. I mean, well, I'm I'm case in point. I mean, I'm walking embodiment of that in a certain way where I was gravitating towards that sort of reactionary stance on the right, particularly the way McManus was referring to it. And I mean, I have McManus to go and, you know, walk me back from that from that position essentially i just had i just uh saw matt in toronto uh about a week ago or so and uh, we had drinks and it was great to see him i didn't see him for long enough him and victor um from the from the pill pod we hung out for a little bit and i wish i had more time to spend with them but those guys are great and i think they're doing amazing work yeah no his work is 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 out of this world in terms of the writing i mean just the production of all of the writing he he's very prolific very prolific Exactly. So, I mean, to me, it's been a fantastic education on that. Um, the other question, too, though, that I want, I mean, we pr- probably go and finish on this as well, because I really appreciate what you're talking about in terms of a new humanism instead of what Adrian Johnson has sort of kind of floated around in terms of a, a new German idealism. Um, and I'm happy to hear you kind of flesh out some of this thought of, you know, some of your differences between the uh, the materialist or well, new materialism or you know, he's. He, I think he categorized himself more as a materialist, where you would categorize yourself more as a humanist. Um, and I'm happy to hear as well that you're not so stuck up on the idea of, you know, we need to maintain some sort of secularism. We can actually go and drop that if we have a healthy humanism. So I was curious to hear, I mean, because I've started reading his new book on um, new German idealism because of Chris Satur. I had him on my pod to go and talk about, you know, all of the excitement and the rave of people that are gravitating towards German idealism today. And to me, this 
in a certain way, I see it as a, as a, almost a form of regression on the left, as somebody that's been exposed to Habermas. And I was curious to go and kind of get your take on that uh, in terms of Adrian Johnson's work. And if you think that, you know, his materialism or new German, uh, German idealism is in contradiction or in tension with what you're trying to articulate in terms of a new humanism. Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that I am absolutely amazed by Adrian's output. Um, I'm uh, a little intimidated <laughs> by the uh, not just the amount of writing that he does, but his archive and his body of knowledge. When I read his books, I find that I'm constantly learning so much. The one thing I really, really dislike in Adrian's um, work is his referencing style. So I, you know, I constantly have, you know, I have bookmarks like at the you know, the footnotes and the reference. <laughs> I have to constantly go back and forth. And I wish that he was a little bit more um, um, clear on the sources that he's citing um in his work not that he's not clear but it's very difficult to dig through his work to try to find everything but i always find that i'm learning so much um especially in his series he's got the two volumes and there's supposed to be a third volume his prolegomena um to any future materialism i think that's what it's called and the second volume um has been um central to a lot of my thinking especially around the history of materialism in, in Marxist thinking from Engels forward, um, some of the writing he's done in Althusser that I've mentioned here, I've definitely mm. um, learned from um, Adrian's uh, writing. And um, I wouldn't say that um, he's a materialist versus I'm a humanist, because I think of my humanism very much as a materialism. And despite the fact that I do think it's important to include um, people who uh, are religious into emancipatory thinking, the materialism that I espoused is very much tied to my secularism. And I mean that in the sense that uh, it's driven by uh, human subjects and collective humanity taking responsibility for the, the material conditions that we create and build ourselves. So my humanism, I still think very much as a, as a materialism, I think of it as a dialectical materialism and yeah. I, of course drawing on Zizek not dialectical materialism in the Stalinist sense um where the dialectic I think is still one that's built around this teleological notion of a uh, reconciliation with some whole um at the end of history and not a dialectical humanism in that sense but a materialism that is dialectical in grasping the presence of real material contradictions. In the face of real material contradictions, we human subjects are capable of transforming and changing the material conditions in which we find ourselves um, structurally, institutionally, at the level of infrastructure, but even at the level of, say, you know, the, the medical sciences or the environment where we can't necessarily um, wholly change those material circumstances, but we can learn about them and we can understand them. And in learning about them and understanding, we can make changes to ourselves um, and in order to improve the quality of our health and the, the quality of our living. You, you mentioned before the perspectives that I have on technology. And I think that this is something worth bringing up in on this point too, because 
Susan Buck Morse, I'm trying to remember where, where I read this, but Susan Buck Morse had this really great point about how um, the issue with technology is not that it's technology or humanity versus technology or technology versus nature, but that technology is always very much a way that we understand the human relationship to nature and that there are different social and political ways of organizing our relationship to technology and thus to uh, to our environment. For instance, there is a capitalist way of relating to nature that we understand through the development of technology and capitalism. There might there can be a socialist way of relating to nature via the technology that we use. And there's there's no way to conceive, as far as I'm concerned, a human society that is anti-technology. I think mm. that so much of our development and so much of our um, our living is dependent upon various different types of technologies, um, whether that's communication technology, whether that's medical technology, um, for instance. I mean, I don't think that we can have a thriving human culture and civilization if we decide that we're just all going to be Luddites and reject technology. I think <laughs> yeah, that we absolutely. have to change the way in which we relate to technology in a certain way. On that point, too, I disagree with a lot of the, the ideas around the so-called metabolic rift the rift between humanity and nature. I don't think that there's been a rift um, between humanity and nature, but we have just different historical ways of relating to nature in different ways. So we haven't broken it and we can't, you know, then heal the wound that we created. We just, it's just a matter of thinking about the different structures we want to build in terms of how we're going to um, relate to nature via the technologies that create the possibilities for human um, living and civilization. Now, where I disagree with Adrian is his notion of, he calls it a transcendental materialism. So I've said that my humanism is a dialectical humanism that's drawing very much on Zizek's dialectical materialism that he gets in his rethinking of Hegel, and it's a rethinking of Hegel as a dialectical materialism that he's positing against the so-called new materialism. But Adrian's transcendental materialism um, is a little confusing to me because this is where I find myself coming up to the dilemmas of the of idealism, the idealism that I think um, um, the dialectical materialism, um, even in Marx and Engels, is challenging um, in a certain way. And I'm not really sure where Adrian wants to take this idea in terms of its ethics, um, in terms of what is going to be done. I know that at the level of the sciences, for instance, um, he draws much more on um, Catherine Malibu and the idea of um, brain um, um, plasticity, neuroplasticity, whereas Zizek is drawn more towards quantum physics. And um, for me, at least in terms of Zizek's ontology, quantum physics makes sense as an influence if we think about you know, um, the idea of an incomplete reality that is only um, developed as subjects interact with reality, right? The, the, the Schrodinger's cat, you know, if you want to, you, you know, you don't know the real reality until you make an act that the presence of the human subject has an impact on the production um, of reality. The other thing in Adrian's work too, that I'm kind of trying to figure out is the way that he, and maybe I'm wrong on this, and I have to look at this again, and it's been a while since I've read um, the German idealism book that you mentioned, as well as um, 
um, Adventures in Transcendental Materialism, I think was one of the other um, books. But I'm trying to understand where, I mean, he refers to Zizek sometimes, I think, as a monist or as a pan... Uh, a pantheist. Pan, pantheist. Well, pan okay. Sorry? A pantheist, no? Or a panpsychist? No, 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 not just pantheist, but a panpsychism. Pan so the idea okay. that not just humans, human subjects have a mind, but that all things have a mind. And I think that uh, Adrian interprets Zizek's work as imagining that all of reality has a mind in some way. Maybe I'm wrong in this, but I think I've heard him or seen him uh, mention this before, or the idea of a monism, because I think that there's, I mean, many people attribute a monism to Hegel, that there's one substance of reality, the way that Spinoza um, is a monist, that there's one substance or one type of substance um, of reality versus a dualistic thinking, the split between mind and body. And I don't think that those are the only options. I think that there's a dialectical way of thinking that sees not just a oneness and not a two-ness, but that reality is fissured by contradictions, gaps, cleavages. This is where Zizek's work on interpreting the Lacanian logics of sexuation and Lacan describes the feminine position as one of a not all. That Zizek says reality is not all, reality is not whole. And because it is not whole, that's why we experience contradictions in being. And that's why we experience contradictions in the sexual relation. That's why we experience political contradictions. If reality was whole and complete, then we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be faced with these existing contradictions that emerge as um, forms of political subjectivization. And that the way to grapple with this is to acknowledge that the only path towards reconciling with truth is to make a choice, to choose a side in a political antagonism, for instance, to choose a side and to take its logic all the way to its end point take take a chuck to take a side to subjectivize that side and to follow the logic of that side all the way to its ultimate limit point and that's where we can discover truth and truth as incompleteness of reality where we are forced to make it again make a choice you're in a situation you have to make a choice and that choice is not going to be um, a choice that gives you everything you ever wanted you're going to lose something in that choice but losing that something in that choice is both a sign of the fact that our subjectivity is constitutively alienated but it's also a sign that because there is no guarantee to our action because we don't get it all that we are still ultimately condemned if you want to put it in sartrean terms condemned to be free Got it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I'm enjoying uh, Adrian's work so far. Um, but I'm skeptical, I guess, because of how much I've been exposed to Habermas is this idea of going back to German idealism. Uh, I appreciate the idea that, you know, he's trying to go and weave in some sort of transcendental answer into his dialectical materialism. Uh, but so far, I mean, just, you know, if I put my cards out on the table, I'm just much more sympathetic to your kind of idea of trying to come up with a whole new structuralism and humanism. Uh, to me, that just seems to fit. I think Habermas would agree with you, put it you that way. <laughs> I think he... I mean, I'm not an expert on Habermas, but if you had longer, um, there's so much more we could say about Habermas. I mean, my yeah. studies of Habermas are limited to his work on the structural transformation of the public sphere, okay. his work on communicative action or communicative reason. Um, his book on um, modernism and postmodernism, I'm forgetting the title, 
at the moment is a it's a great text and I recommend reading it. But I still find him to be a little too uh, liberal in his orientation. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. In, well, I can see that. I can see that in terms of where you. But are. I mean, I have a great, re- you know, great respect for Habermas's work. Um, one of my one of my favorite pieces of his writing is his uh, text, uh, uh, Modernity and Incomplete Project. I think that's the title of the because I agree with him that I think that. But as I put it somewhere, I think that it's not that modernity is only an incomplete project, but that incompleteness is the major discovery of modernity. That modernity, in modernity we discover, and this is what I get in Zizek again, is that we discover that incompleteness is still very much a constitutive part of our being, our reality, and our our subjectivity as well. And that's part of what makes it infinite in a certain way. Yeah. No, I mean, but all of your work, I mean, I, I find to be captivating. Adrian's work as well speaks to me a bit more in terms of the compared to Zizek, because like you said, I mean, he leans, he goes towards physics and stuff like that. And I just think that's a bad move. I think, uh, I think, Adrian's- I mean, I, I should say that I still, I love Adrian's work and I'm yeah. uh, very much in awe of his work. Uh, yeah. And I, I find his work so very, very intimidating. Um, um, but, uh, and I, but I love, and I learned so much from reading Adrian's work. Yeah, no, I mean, from what I've read so far, I mean, it's been fantastic. And, and I, I think mean, to me, it's, German- it's an interesting way for me to, in sort of dialectical tension, the way I'm learning it anyways, is that you guys dialectical, you know, the sort of back and forth that you guys have had with Zizek, uh, you know, over the years as well, I think to be really fascinating. Uh, and just to see this whole new cohort of thinkers of, you know, that are moving into the universities now that are starting to go and develop and launch their careers at this point. So to me, and this is just a really exciting time uh, to go out and witness and see all of this sort of happening all at the same time. I mean, there's make, a lot of... Make no mistake, we're very few and far between. Uh, the, <laughs> the true, yeah. positions that I challenged, you know, the post-humanists, the new materialists, even a lot of, you know, bourgeois liberal. I mean, that's still very much part of the traditional, the at least in Canada, and I think in the United States, I can speak much more about the Canadian situation. But this is still very much, I mean, you know, if you if, don't buy the argument that universities are just these postmodern neo-Marxist or whatever. In fact, I would prefer if you called, you know, said liberal Maoism, but that's a longer uh, conversation. Um, but I, as Zizek said to Peterson, where are the Marxists? Where are the Marxists? We are very, very yeah. few and far between. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's, it's been, uh, I mean, all of it, I mean, is it's just wild to go and witness. I mean, since, I mean, I've been going down memory lane now, I mean, back to when I was in university in terms of, I mean, the Quebec, uh, student protests, and then I graduated in 2013 and the whole spill out of that. Right. And I was in that sort of cacophony of, of madness on that point, right? Where we're seeing all these fractions within the university. And to me, it's it's amazing now what was going on. It's all of a sudden it's spilt out of the university in terms of the public sphere. And yeah. that to me is an interesting dimension as well when I think back to, uh, to Habermas's work. Uh, and you're, you're, you're coming back to technology too. I mean, I could probably talk to you a lot about that too, is the idea of instrumental reason, obviously within Habermas's work, right? And how yeah. that can go and just uh destroy humanity if we don't go and keep it in check in a certain way um marcuse too i mean i failed to mention marcuse when i was talking about the humanist but marcuse is somebody who um has been influential in humanist circle but he's also somebody who i very much disagree with um in other ways because he maintains the same sort of um um model of 
alienation and then disalienation via a certain reading of technology that I even see, and I'm writing about this, this will be part one of the chapters in the eventual book, um, comparing um, Marcuse to Marshall McLuhan's historical trajectory um, of media. But as it, but as you say, that's a, it's a much longer conversation that I'm happy to have another time. Oh, great. Yeah, no. And I mean, maybe we can go and end on that, too. I mean, because essentially this research that you've been doing on humanism essentially has been a grant for a number of years now, which is, mm -hmm. if I understand correctly, I mean, this is priming you to uh, release a book on this, a formal book at one point or another, I think, is it? Hopefully sooner rather than later. It's, it's about 60% complete, I would say. Um, it's not going to be, I mean, it was a very, when I imagine it was a very, very big project that was going to, in the end, try to dive into, um, a, a deeper understanding of what I think of as against Althusser, the anti-humanism of the Stalin period, especially after the 1936 constitution of the Soviet Union, um, the influence of socialist realism or the debates around socialist realism versus the and uh, the avant-garde in the Soviet Union. And that's going to have to be a project for another time. But there's just a, a couple more things that I want to get down um, on paper. And hopefully um, in a few months, I'll have it done. But uh, um, it, it's it's close and I'm excited about uh, having, uh, having it come out. Well, either way, I mean, the papers you've released talking about all this have been amazing. And I'll make sure to go put that in, in the, the show notes and stuff like that for people right. to go out and check out. Interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's been so much fun to go and see that, you know, the, the slow leak of your thinking around some of this stuff <laughs> through this. Work stay, tu stay tuned, stay tuned, stay tuned. There's more coming out. Super. Okay. Well, listen, I mean, I really appreciate your time. And um, I, again, I mean, if you have more work in the pipeline, eventually I'd love to come back around and, and have you back on and even flesh out some of this thinking as well. I'd love to hear you uh, uh, go a bit more toe to toe with uh, Adrian Johnson's work because I feel that there could be a, a real fruitful <laughs> uh, back and forth there, along with the back and forth that you guys have been doing with Zizek all these years and stuff like that. Yeah. So. No, sounds uh, good. It's been really fun, and I really appreciate you having me here to talk about these ideas. I really, really, really had fun talking about this. Thanks.